0: Welcome to The Deep Dive, a weekly podcast that takes a deeper look into the happenings at the Walrus. I'm Sheena Rossiter, and I'm Angela Mystery. On this week's episode...
1: Canada's decision to claim Ayub is a national security threat and is an alleged member of a terrorist organization is really rooted in China's long history of repressing Uyghurs and framing them as terrorists. This week, we'll hear from Annie Hilton for the March-April issue of The Walrus. Annie takes a
0: look at the long and complex case of Ayyub Muhammad. He's a Uyghur man. Uyghurs are a largely Muslim, Turkic-speaking ethnic group, and they're persecuted in China. Recently, Canada's parliament recognized what's happening to Uyghurs as genocide. While Ayub was trying to escape persecution in China in 2001, he found himself in Afghanistan during 9-11. And in the chaos that ensued, he was sold for bounty to U.S. forces and sent to Guantanamo Bay. U.S. officials then maintained that Ayub was a member of ETIM, allegedly a Uyghur terrorist group. Though, this may have been part of an attempt to secure China’s support for the War on Terror. Today, Annie takes readers through Ayub Mohammed’s long and complex journey, from his birthplace in China to Guantanamo Bay to Albania, while also chronicling his attempts to join his family here in Canada. Annie is an independent investigative journalist and writer from Saskatchewan who’s now based in Paris, where she is an associate professor at Science Po. She won a gold National Magazine Award for her 2020 long-form feature, Searching for Mackie, which was published in The Walrus. Now let's hear your conversation with Annie Hilton. Can you tell us a little bit about Uyghur Muslims and the community in China? Who are they?
1: Uyghurs are a largely Muslim, Turkic-speaking ethnic group whose homeland lies in the northwest of modern-day China. They are native to present-day Xinjiang, a region many Uyghurs refer to as East Turkestan. And today, Xinjiang is one of China's most ethnically diverse areas with over 12 million Uyghurs who make up the largest ethnic minority. So how did they come
0: to be a persecuted group in China, and how long has this really been going on for?
1: Yeah, so this is a very long story. I will try to be brief. So a tempestuous history defined the Uyghurs' homeland And a string of governments, first under the Qing dynasty, fought to control the land and its people. Fast forward to communist China, which swept in and conquered the area. And communist China had ambitions to develop the region for foreign trade and economic pursuits. And in the process encouraged China's dominant Han ethnic group to move to the region. So around then, demographics shifted and inequality grew. And the Uyghurs were periodically purged of the opportunity to practice their traditions and speak their language and were often targeted by authorities. So political activism grew And China became concerned with ethnic nationalism and organized political opposition. And this is sort of the root. And this really led to a giant crackdown, the culmination of which led in recent years, which many of us have heard about, to the detention of thousands of Uyghurs and other Turkic and Muslim minorities.
0: Let's kind of get more into the details of your feature for the March-April issue of The Walrus, which looks at the story of Ayyub Muhammad, who is a migrant Uyghur. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and who he is as a person?
1: Ayyub, who is now in his late 30s, has spent more than half of his life fighting one government or another to be free. He was born and raised in Xinjiang in a city near the Kyrgyzstan border, and he grew up in a modest home with a loving family who had ambitions for him to pursue an education outside of Xinjiang where opportunities for Uyghurs were severely restricted. So to make a long story short, after leaving Xinjiang at the age of 18, In the summer of 2001, with dreams of studying in the US, Ayub wound up sold to the United States for bounty as an alleged terrorist in post 9-11 Pakistan. He was then held for four years at the Guantanamo Bay detention facility and finally exonerated And resettled in Albania now 16 years ago. And in the meantime, he met a wife, a Uyghur Canadian woman, and had two children with her. And since then, for the past eight years or so, he's been in a protracted fight to resettle in Canada with his wife and children who are Canadian citizens and live in Canada. And he has been denied resettlement for national security reasons. And in the piece, I argue essentially that Canada's decision to claim Ayub is a national security threat and is an alleged member of a terrorist organization is really rooted in China's long history of repressing Uyghurs and framing them as terrorists. How
0: did 9-11 make this situation worse?
1: Yeah, so this is a fascinating, very terrible story for Ayub. Essentially, China saw an opportunity to align with the U.S.'s amorphous definition of the so-called war on terror— to justify further repressing Uyghurs. So what before 9-11 had been mostly seen as China's local grievances with the Uyghurs was rebranded as terrorism. And to be clear, there were certainly Uyghur separatists and calls for independence in the region, but academics and researchers and those familiar with the region at the time, widely saw this narrative shift as a means to further repress the Uyghurs. And it's a complicated story, but China claimed one group, which it called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, was responsible for several terrorist incidents and linked Ayub and 21 other Uyghurs as being members of this group. Around then, China claimed one group, which called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, was responsible for several terrorism incidents and was linked with foreign terrorist organizations. And Ayub, along with 21 other Uyghurs, found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time when he was sold for bounty and transferred to Guantanamo Bay. And there, authorities claimed he was a member of this so-called East Turkestan Islamic Movement or ETIM. The US and UN then added this group to a couple of terrorist lists, which gave further justification to hold the Uyghurs in Guantanamo Bay without charge. And lawyers and researchers and academics surmised that, given the timing of these listings, that the Uyghurs held at Guantanamo Bay became pawns for the Bush administration's plans to invade Iraq. It's all very complicated. There are many threads. In essence, the U.S. needed China's support in the U.N. Security Council to invade Iraq. It never ended up getting the support of the Security Council, but this was sort of the framing at the time that there was sort of a quid pro quo. U.S. officials, of course, denied this framing. But in any case, eventually, Ayub was exonerated and transferred from Guantanamo But the point is that the stamp of Guantanamo Bay and this terrorist narrative shadows him everywhere he goes, including in his efforts to resettle with his family in Canada.
0: As you said, there are many, many threads, which is why this is such a long read. In the first place, how did you end up coming across this story?
1: I was researching another story related to Canada's safe third country agreement with the U.S. and how it impacts slash harms asylum seekers. And Ayub's current lawyer had been representing a woman who had a very powerful, meaningful story and in passing mentioned Ayub's case. And this was a few years ago, but the facts he shared never left me. And as the public attention has turned increasingly to the extent of China's repression of Uyghurs, I decided to revisit it. And the timing, I think, was quite important because had I approached the piece earlier, I'm not sure I would have made the links between Ayub's identity as a Uyghur the Chinese government's role in branding him a terrorist threat and his resettlement in Canada.
0: So what's his life like now that he's been exonerated and he's resettling in Canada?
1: So he has been resettled in Albania for now about 16 years, where he has a form of refugee status without the full rights of being a refugee. So His travel is restricted. He's forbidden from leaving the country. He has no identity documents and does not have the right to work. He receives a modest stipend from the Albanian government and lives very precariously according to him and is essentially, you know, most days of the year separated from his wife and children. And last summer, I traveled to Albania to see him And his wife and children were visiting him for the first time in two and a half years. So life for Ayub has been unrelenting.
0: The plight of Uyghur Muslims has been getting a little bit more attention, namely in recent times with the Winter Olympics being in Beijing and other high-profile athletes and celebrities that have been shining a light on these human rights abuses. Has this helped make things a little bit better for Uyghurs?
1: The short answer is no. There doesn't seem to be any evidence, at least that I'm aware of, that China has changed its policies despite diplomatic pressures and sanctions. And
0: how has Canada's position changed on Uyghur Muslims?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. So human rights groups and Uyghur advocates in Canada have criticized Trudeau's government for not doing more to denounce China's treatment of Uyghurs or taking a stronger stance against China. While in February of last year, Canada's parliament voted overwhelmingly to recognize the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang as genocide. The House of Commons has voted to declare what's happening to the minority
0: Muslim Uyghur population in China a genocide. The motion was put forward by the Conservatives, who called on the Liberals to send a united message about human rights. No MPs voted
1: against it, but not everyone voted for it. Trudeau and nearly his entire cabinet abstained from the vote. And last March, Canada joined other countries like the US and those in the EU and the UK in slapping sanctions on several Chinese officials and one entity for human rights violations in Xinjiang. But Trudeau has been very careful not to use the term genocide which he has said is, quote-unquote, extremely loaded. And I will add, Ayub is not the only Uyghur who was formerly held in Guantanamo Bay seeking family reunification in Canada. There are two other men who live in Bermuda, Salahadeen Abdullahad and Khalil Mahmoud, also have Canadian wives and children and have been prevented from reuniting with their families as well for the same reason as Ayub, And the decision not to allow these men into Canada, according to activists and lawyers, is merely political and something that the Trudeau government could easily solve but has chosen not to.
0: Is part of the reason, because China is such a heavyweight and such a big player, such a big economy, that... Canada doesn't want to get involved, especially after the two Michaels incident?
1: I think that's a question that many people are raising, and there's one activist, Mehmet Toti, who says that you know the decision not to resettle these men is merely political. And you know, the Trudeau government has come under fire for prioritizing economic and diplomatic ties with China in favor of taking a stronger stance against denouncing human rights violations. Now let's check out what Annie is watching right now. It's a show called Euphoria, which is an HBO drama series that follows a group of high school students. It's a raw, often devastating portrait of the challenges of addiction and betrayal and navigating violent and toxic relationships. What I like about this show is that it feels like an authentic experience and is even cathartic for me at times. It's not lazy, empty escapism, which is the type of entertainment that I have found myself drawn to during the pandemic. So sometimes the show is uncomfortable, but there's something profound about feeling like you're observing a former version of yourself learn and grow.
0: That's my conversation with Annie Hilton. The editor for her piece is Harley Rustad. You can read Annie's story, Endless Exile, the tangled politics keeping a Uyghur man in limbo, at thewalrus.ca right now.
2: I'm Mihira Lakshman, and here's what we've been talking about this week at The Walrus. All eyes are on Ukraine right now, including inside the Walrus as the war unfolds and the situation evolves. Like many of you, we've been sharing links to donate money in the hopes that it helps the population of Ukraine. The Globe and Mail posted an article specific for Canadians looking to help. We put the May-June double issue to bed this week, including a story about the promise of $10 childcare and we're planning an article club around it because we know how much conversation that topic generates. I wrote a piece about the challenges of being a working parent, trying to work over Zoom and care for a young child. That was almost two years ago, you can believe it. Coming out of this pandemic in whatever form that takes, childcare continues to dominate many of our lives. As always, the links for all these articles can be found in the show notes for this episode.
0: Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of The Deep Dive. It was produced by Angela Mystery and me, Sheena Rossiter. I also edited this episode. Music for this podcast is provided by Audio Jungle. Our theme song is This Podcast Theme by Implus Music. Additional music is Stay Cool by Loops Labs and Podcast Intro by Plus Music. You also heard Lightless, Floating Cities, Shores of Avalon, and Comfortable Mystery by Kevin MacLeod, provided by Film Music. Additional sources for this episode were provided by Global News on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe to the Deep Dive from the Walrus on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review and rating. It really helps people find the podcast. Until next week, when we take our next... Deep Dive.